The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. Visit GoBoldly.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. As the Trump administration grapples with a crisis of its own making, I sat down with a man who knows exactly what they're grappling with and took a different course of action. Jay Johnson, Secretary of Homeland Security under President Obama. What happened when he faced separating children from their parents? It was just simply not something we could do. You can hear him get into this and more, including the NFL kneeling controversy, right now. Secretary Johnson, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Jonathan, thanks for having me. So you wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post where you talk about how you and your wife went to McAllen, Texas. Yes. You went to this detention facility. Yes. This was back in 2014, I believe, when we were having the crisis of the children from Central America coming over the border. Various Trump administration officials have basically laid the blame of what's happening today at the feet of the Obama administration, really at, at your feet. And they said, y'all did it, so we're just doing what you did. Can you please walk us through the differences between what's happening now and what happened in 2014 when you and Susan went to McAllen, Texas, and as you wrote, you saw the little girl sitting on a bench or on a chair and how that she was crying that made you cry that made Susan cry. Talk about the differences. Well, I think the larger context should be explained here. And I'm not going to point fingers. And I mean, that's too tempting a political game, frankly. This is a multi-year problem. And we're going to continue to wrestle with it so long as we fail to address the underlying causes. So fact one, illegal migration on our southern border is now a fraction of what it used to be. In fiscal year 2000, there were 1.6 million apprehensions on our southern border. And apprehensions are an indicator of total attempts to cross the border illegally. So FY 2000, 1.6 million. In recent years, which includes the Obama and Trump administrations, that number has ranged in the three to 400,000 range. And that is because of several factors. One, we've put a lot more border security on the southern border. Those were investments made over the Clinton, Bush, and Obama years. More wall and fence. There actually already is a wall on the southern border, about 700 miles, over 1,900 miles of border fence, pedestrian fence, vehicle fence, whatever is appropriate for the specific terrain, more surveillance, more vehicles, more boats, more planes, and more border patrol agents. Plus, and this is the more significant factor, the economy in the United States and in Mexico. Those are the underlying push and pull factors that lead to illegal migration. And so if you look at the downward trend They came at a time when the economy in the U.S. wasn't doing so well, but the economy in Mexico improved over the last 18 years. So it's a fraction of what it used to be. But 
the demographic has totally changed. It's no longer the single adult male from Mexico. It is women and children from Central America because of the poverty and violence in Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. It is human nature to flee a burning building and to scoop up your kids and bring them with you. And so we saw this spike in the kids in the summer of 2014. As you noted, I saw it for myself when I went to McAllen Station, Texas on Mother's Day with my wife, and it was literally a flood of children in what appeared in, in a border patrol facility. And I knew then, vividly up, clo up close and personal, that we had a real problem that had to be addressed. And there were a number of things, which I'm sure we'll get into, that we did to drive the numbers down. But the lesson learned from that experience was that, and the Trump administration is learning this now, there are certain things you can do that will have the effect of driving down the numbers in our enforcement policy, but the effect will be, at best, only short-term. So long as the underlying conditions exist, the longer-term trends will always be in place and the numbers will begin to revert. So in 2014, the numbers went down after we did a number of things. By July 2014, frankly, the numbers had, had dropped significantly. And in 2015, we had a very low number of apprehensions. It was the second lowest number since 1972. 2016, the numbers began to creep up again. 2017, right after President Trump took office, the numbers dropped off very significantly, owing, in my judgment, to simply his rhetoric, his anti-immigration rhetoric. The new administration had not invested a single additional dollar in early 2017 in border security, but the numbers fell off significantly, probably because of his rhetoric. But then, as I said a moment ago, it began to revert to its normal trends. And so that here we are in 2018 with something like 40,000 or 50,000 migrants a month trying to cross our southern border. And that's what the Trump administration is wrestling with at the moment. And the point of the op-ed is so long as we fail to address the underlying conditions that motivate women and children to leave Central America in the first place, we're going to continue to bang our head against the wall and try all sorts of different things, including some very controversial things uh, to deal with this problem. But we've got to invest in addressing the underlying causes and problems and providing people with a safe alternative path to leave a very disastrous situation. And I want to get to these the, those controversial things in, in a moment, but the United States is not going to, as it stands right now, even address those underlying causes that you're talking about in those countries, just given who the president is, just given how compliant the Congress is. So <laughs> you're, you're looking actually, like, actually in uh, fiscal year 2016, the Congress began to make an investment in addressing the underlying causes with an appropriation of $750 million. Now, rightfully, it had all sorts of strings attached before these countries could get the money. In 17 and 18, Congress also appropriated money, but the levels have been falling off. Mm -hmm. So I think it needs to go in the opposite direction. 
and so should the rhetoric. I mean, the president the other day in a speech said that, you know, these countries, they're not sending their best. And in fact, if they keep not sending their best, if they keep sending sending these people, well, we should cut off their aid. Well, let me give you a case in point. So when we were in office, I made a very personal appeal to my Mexican counterpart, Miguel Osario Chong. And President Obama made a direct appeal to President Peña Nieto, you must do more on your southern border. And they agreed to do it. By July 2014, they had agreed to step up their own border security efforts on their southern border, which did a lot to contribute to the downturn that we saw by late summer 2014. And they kept those measures in place for quite a long time, though they had huge budget constraints. They made a Mm -hmm. pledge and they adhere to their pledge. Now, with the rhetoric, as you point out, it is going to be far more difficult, particularly after the Mexican election, which is coming up very, very soon. It's going to be far more difficult to obtain the Mexican government's cooperation in our own border security efforts. In fact, the new president of Mexico may go in the entirely opposite direction. Let's talk about these controversial things because another one of the things the Trump administration says is, well, the Obama administration separated children from their families and so we're just continuing that. Well, there there have been dozens of fact checkers that have looked into that and found that claim to be either false or misleading at best. Mm-hmm. What I want to – what I'm trying to get at is – In 2014, when you were going through this, and I remember reading a story, I believe it was um, in the New York Times, where it talked about as the crisis was happening in 2014, as was the want of of the Obama administration, put all the options on the table. How do we solve this? Put all the options on the table. What I'm trying to understand is how many nanoseconds did it take for the line that said separate children from families to come off that list where it was decided look, we're not even entertaining that because that is that is not only untenable, it would be immoral. I encouraged our border security people, specifically Tom Holman, who was then head of enforcement and removal operations at ICE. He's now the acting director of ICE. And Kevin McAleenan and Commissioner Kurlikowski at CBP to – come forward with all options. And I wanted to continually evaluate, are we doing all the right things here? And I'm quite sure that the option of separating kids was presented to me and my Obama administration colleagues at the White House. And it was just simply not something we were going to do. From seeing these migrants up close and personal at Border Patrol facilities, where you see mothers literally clinging to their babies after they've carried them literally all the way from Central America, I could not pull a child from her mother and I couldn't ask someone in the Border Patrol or ICE to do that, nor could I even float it as a deterrent measure. It's just something I I couldn't do and my colleagues couldn't do in the administration. And so we did other things which were controversial. As you know, we expanded family detention which was sort of the opposite of separating families, keeping them together. And that was controversial. Very plainly, that was controversial. And I'm not claiming we were perfect. I mean, we, we made some mistakes. There were some lessons learned. Very, this is a very, very difficult problem. Mm-hmm. 
And we had to make some very, very difficult decisions. And the, anytime you're wrestling with border security, immigration matters, there are never any perfect solutions. No matter what you do, somebody's going to be really mad at you. True. True. I remember. No matter what uh, you yeah. do, somebody's going to be really mad at you. We're all focused on the horror of just the voices of the babies, really. These young children screaming for their parents that we've heard mm-hmm. on the ProPublica audio. Just from your perspective, and I'm trying not to get, I'm really trying not to have you, you know, get into like a, a, a proxy war with the Trump administration. But I do think we need to have a, a conversation about the morality of what's happening and what it says about us as a country right now and how far we've fallen from the years when you were DHS secretary and you're grappling with very serious issues that have very complicated solutions, and yet all of you were able to say, this, we are not, we are not doing that. It's here on the paper, but we're not doing that. And how quickly we've gone from that to babies being taken from their mothers, from their fathers, baby prisons being set up to the point where our friend Rachel Maddow, who is as stoic as any news person can be, right. broke down on air right. over this. Yeah. I can't give you a window into the decision-making and the moral fiber of the people who are in decision-making positions today. I can tell you how I felt at the time, which was this is just simply not something I could do. It doesn't take a lot of reflection to come to the conclusion that there is a global human right of every child to be with her parent. And there is a global human right of every parent to be with her child absent extraordinary circumstances of health or safety. And so it was just not something we could do. Now, I want to be plain about something. The images in 2014 were not pretty either. Mm -hmm. Just given the demographic of migrant flows that we were dealing with then and dealing with now, there were a lot of children and parents at border patrol facilities and a border patrol facility, you know, when you're coming in fresh off the, off the border is a pretty crude place. It's not a pretty place. Mm -hmm. And so then as now we saw very vivid, disturbing images, images carry a lot with the American public. And my hope is that the public stays engaged and interested in this issue, though the political crisis here in Washington was resolved short-term when President Trump signed that executive order, the humanitarian crisis on our southern border still exists. The crisis in Central America still exists. We're very focused on the 2,300 children who have been dislocated from their parents, as we should be, but there were also some 11,000 children without their parents in HHS shelters who didn't even make it here with their parents. Their parents are still in Those Central the unaccompanied America, minors. The unaccompanied yeah. children. And there are some 30, 40, 50,000 migrants crossing the border each month now. And so that represents a much larger crisis that has 
persisted at various different ebbs and flows for the last several years that still needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Now, you were talking about things that have been done to try to alleviate the situation in the short term. President Trump's executive order, which just, what is it now, 48, 24 hours or 48 hours after after he signed it, there's still confusion over what exactly it does. And then, you know, the Friday morning, he sends out a tweet that says, until we have a Republican, more Republicans in Congress, we shouldn't do anything on immigration. Well, I can't speak to that. I, I do know, just from reading the Post and the Times, that there seems to be considerable confusion within the agencies that have to implement <laughs> the executive order about exactly what it is they are supposed to do. So the Department of Justice is asking, and it seems to be proceeding as if the zero tolerance policy still exists. Which the executive order says, zero, you know, right, he says it still they, exists. They also appear to be, if you listen to CBP, not implementing it 100%. So it's not exactly a zero tolerance policy. There does seem to be some, and I'm going to use a word that many people in the current administration don't believe exists. There does seem to be some prosecutorial discretion going into exactly who they prosecute. And if you believe the story that was out recently from CBP, that they're no longer prosecuting parents who have small children, that's one thing. But then we don't know exactly what efforts are being made or how to reunite parents with their kids. And so the president signed this thing, but there still seems to be a lot of challenge when it comes to implementing it. And it's important to understand exactly what he did. He says the zero tolerance policy is still in place, but we're not separating women and kids anymore. And we have to go to court and get this court order reversed. And so unless it's overridden by legislation, it is up to a federal judge in Los Angeles to agree that the Trump administration can expand their family detention capability. And that lawsuit stems from a settlement from over 20 years ago, which I'm sure you've heard reference to in a case Is, it, is this Flores? Flores. Okay. Talk, more about, uh, talk okay. more about that. All right. I'm going to sound a little bit like a lawyer here because I am. So <laughs> yeah. in 1997, a group of private parties made a settlement agreement with the U.S. government, the effect of which was that unaccompanied children, unaccompanied children would only be housed in licensed, non-secure facilities. In other words, no prisons, no detention facilities for unaccompanied children. In 2015, after we were dealing with the spike in migration mm-hmm. in 2020, and we'd expanded our family detention capability, the lawyers went back to court to the judge overseeing that case, Judge Dolly G, and said, they're violating the settlement. We said, no, we're not. These are not unaccompanied kids. These are families. And the judge determined that that settlement agreement also applied to families, to kids with their parents, which frankly was a surprise to a lot of us in the Obama administration, myself included. We took that up on appeal. It was affirmed on appeal. And so we adhered to that ruling, and the judge allowed us to adhere to that ruling by making the average length of stay of families in family detention 21 days. 
the average length of stay, 21 days. So when you hear references to the judge ruled that they can only stay no more than 20 days, that's not exactly right. That is how we and the Trump administration have implemented her ruling from, I think it was 2015. And so in order to expand family detention, the Trump administration needs to go back to this same judge and say, we need relief from your prior ruling. And so, and that relief would be this judge saying, okay, it's not 20 days, it's um, indefinite or, or whatever, it's 100 days, whatever what, what, she decides. Right, whatever she decides. And I could not predict for you how this judge will rule on this question. How likely is it that um, all of the kids who've been separated from their parents that you mentioned before is 2,300, how likely is it that they'll be reunited? That's a good question. Um, I fear that many of the parents of these kids have been deported. I couldn't tell you. And I couldn't tell you the mechanism that Homeland Security, CBP, ICE will use to track down the parents and the kids and match them together and place them together. Couldn't tell you. Um, That question should be put to somebody in those agencies right now. I I think that question is being put to folks in, in those agencies, but it just seems like particularly the person who's there now, just doesn't seem like there's a care in the world for the consequences of what's happening. Secretary Nielsen, there in the White House press briefing room, when pressed by Jeff Zeleny of CNN, asking her, "It doesn't this equate to child abuse? And she was just like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, the, Jay, the, the callousness... The lack of empathy, the just sort of, and I'm speaking for myself, the amoral attitude towards what's happening is, I think, what's so galling to me as a person, but also as an American. Jonathan, I promised myself when I left office that I was not going to criticize or second-guess my successors unless, I made this promise to myself over a year ago, unless they start separating families. And when that happened, I decided I needed to uh, speak out. Those of us with a public voice and who understand the issue and who had to manage this problem should speak out. And I have, others have. I have no comment on how my successor does at press conferences. Well, I wasn't asking for a critique right. of her right. in the press conference. There, there, are but plenty, there are plenty of people who are, you know, available to criticize well, as some, know, well, those as, in office today or how they're doing. Well, as someone who's Secretary of Homeland Security, who knows all the levers, knows yeah. the law, knows, has been in this situation yes, before. I have. I've lived this issue for three years. You're right. 1,124 days. So so let's say you're in 1,126th day of this. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, this situation that we're in right now, you're Secretary of Homeland Security. What would you advise the president to do? And just scrub out all the current characters involved, but just as— as Well, that's very hard to do because the Secretary of Homeland Security is the agent of the president that he or she serves. And so— it is very difficult for me to envision being part of this administration. Correct. But what you ask, what would I do? It's pretty much reflected in the Washington Post op-ed I wrote, which is continue to provide aid to Guatemala 
El Salvador and Honduras to help them eradicate the poverty and violence that exists in those countries. And B, and this, this is advice I got from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. During 2014, I sought advice from all sorts of people, including my Republican predecessor, Mike Chertoff, by the way. But I'll never forget what someone from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops said to me. You cannot padlock a burning building unless you provide another exit. We have to support efforts in neighboring countries, specifically Mexico, Belize, Panama, Costa Rica, to develop their own systems for refugee resettlement and asylum processing, to provide families, women and children in these three very troubled countries alternative paths to safety and a better life rather than just simply crossing their northern border into Mexico and have them migrate all the way up to the United States, which is what they're doing now. Mm -hmm. We have to provide alternatives and support other countries in the region to provide alternatives. Has anyone sought your advice? You just said a moment ago you sought your Republican predecessor's advice, Michael Chertoff. Has anyone in the Trump administration called you? Because you are the immediate predecessor. On this question, no. On other questions? On other questions, I mean, occasionally I have conversations with friends in senior positions in the Trump administration about various different issues, sure. But not on, not on this issue? No. Interesting. I wish people could see your face because it's very poker right now, which tells me a lot and actually gives me just a tiny, no. tiny bit of comfort that there are people in the Trump administration who are willing to pick up the phone and call you. Well, part of it is I talk to all kinds of people and, you know, good ideas exist in Republican and Democratic administrations. True. Wisdom and experience exist in both kinds of administrations, True. which is why I was willing to look to anybody like Mike Chertoff or Tom Ridge for advice on, on these very difficult problems. And I could say, well, that's wrong. I'm not going to do that, but at least I have the benefit of the advice. Um, now, part of the dynamic here is a lot of the people who I relied upon for formulating our policies are still there. Tom Homan and Kevin McAleen and the commissioner of CBP mm -hmm. are still there. And they are in a position to provide advice, the same advice or different advice to their current political leadership. But I think we could all benefit from um, advice across the board. I will tell you, that when I was general counsel of the Defense Department, I used to solicit views from outsiders who used to be part of the national security legal community, Republican or Democrat. And once or twice a year, I'd even have a dinner. You remember Nora's restaurant? Oh, yeah. Nora's yeah. got mm -hmm. this great private room upstairs. It's not there anymore. And I'd have a dinner. And it was from across the political spectrum. It was all off the record, so I won't get into the personalities, but I guarantee you, it's people you've heard of, people you hear from all the time on cable news, across the, the political spectrum, you would have loved to have been there. I could have sold you tickets to be at this <laughs> dinner to hear people, members of Congress, uh, law professors from across the spectrum 
on national security legal issues, which also were extraordinarily difficult. Back in the first Obama term, we were dealing with drone strikes, we're dealing with Guantanamo, mm-hmm. we're dealing with military commissions. Tough issues. And out of those conversations would always be a revelation, at least one that was worth the dinner. There would always be a revelation. There would always be a wake-up call when all of them would tell me the same thing at once. Or somebody would make a point that I hadn't heard before and hadn't considered. So it was always worth it. And good ideas came from conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats. The key thing you said that is essential to understanding is that you said, I always made a point of reaching out. Because wisdom resides anywhere. Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives. Yeah. Part of being wise is knowing that that is what you should do. Correct. And it seems from where from where I sit, there don't seem to be many wise people I, 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 within I, the Trump administration who have the, the comfort um, and the confidence to pick up the phone and, and seek advice, one. And two, if they do do that, being able then to take the knowledge and the wisdom that they've learned – through their concerted efforts, that it'll be paid attention to or even respected once they take it to the Oval. John Kelly and Elaine Duke were members of my Homeland Security Advisory Committee when I was Secretary of Homeland Security. John Kelly became my successor. Elaine Duke became, the, became his deputy secretary. The Cape Up Podcast is sponsored by Pharma where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. So here's to the fearlessness to fail so success can follow and to the patients helping to find the breakthrough that might save their lives and perhaps one day yours. Welcome to the new era of medicine where together we go boldly. A message from America's biopharmaceutical companies. Visit GoBoldly.com. Are you surprised? by General Kelly. I knew, now. You, were, I knew you were going there. <laughs> How um, could I not? It was like a dangling yeah, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> string. So um, John is someone I consider a friend. When we were dealing with the crisis in 2014, I went to Guatemala and General Kelly came with me. He was commander of U.S. Southern Command when I was Secretary of Homeland Security at the time. And we spoke about his taking the job before he took it. And we have spoken once or twice since then. I was not at all surprised when he took the job of chief of staff. He's a patriot and he's very committed to the country and so he's going to do what his commander-in-chief asks him to do. You know, when you're when you're retired military, when you're a retired, four, it's like once a four-star member of the military, always a four-star member of the military for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. When you're in retired military status, for example, you can legally be recalled to duty over your objection. And so for somebody like John Kelly or Jim Mattis, once a Marine, always a Marine. And so I was not surprised when he took the impossible task of being chief of staff. And I believe that he remains in the position because he's very committed to the country. But does it make sense to stay in the position when every day, every hour, the president of the United States makes it clear via Twitter or or from the cabinet room, that he couldn't care less about your role, your advice, what you are there to do in order to protect him, the president of the United States, from himself. 
John's calculus is probably, if not me, somebody else is going to do this job, this very, very difficult job. And I don't know how long he will stay. I don't know whether he's committed to stay for the duration of the Trump presidency. I, I, you'd have to I'd have ask, to ask him. him. You'd have you to want ask to put me him. in touch with him? Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I do know he is very, very committed to duty, to service, to the nation. At what point do you think anyone should just decide that it's their patriotic duty to step away? That's an excellent question. I gave a whole commencement speech at Georgetown. You want to give me a, just question. a thumbnail, not the whole speech. Two, not, <laughs> two years ago, I said, resignation can relieve yourself of a personal conflict, a conflict with your convictions, your moral convictions, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problem or solve the issue, and you leave it to a successor who may be less sensitive than yourself to deal with the issue. And so while you relieve yourself of a personal burden and you're a celebrity on cable news shows for a couple of weeks and you get to write a really good book, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. It might make a public statement that shuts down the policy, but it might not. The president will just simply find someone else who will do what it is he wants them to do. And so sometimes the better choice is to stay in the chair and continue to fight the good fight. Wow, that's ask, that is asking a lot of someone when everything that is happening around them is an affront. Um, Assuming yes. that they believe that everything around them is an affront. So I'll I'll let you in on a I'll let you in on a secret. Uh, a secret, yes. In either the first or second Obama term, in either the job of General Counsel of Defense or Secretary of Homeland Security, I was never faced with, I want to make this very clear, I was never faced with a personal dilemma of the magnitude we saw this past week separating kids from parents. Never had anything that bad going on in my judgment, in my personal judgment. When I resigned as general counsel of the Department of Defense at the end of the first Obama term, I was really tired, ready to go back to private life. I had done four years and a very difficult job in national security. And I submitted a resignation letter to the president, as you're supposed to do when you're a political appointee. And I will tell you that it was version four. Hmm. <laughs> in other words, there were three other times when earlier you were about, you were about to... that I typed out a resignation letter and just drafting the letter can have a salutary effect. It can just, it, it's therapeutic to just draft the letter, but I never signed it and hit send until the end. And so, you know, sometimes in a very difficult job, particularly in national security, you get really frustrated, uh, but you, sometimes you just have to go on. You just, you just hunker down and go on and do your best and give your best advice to the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of Homeland Security or the President. And I have to say, with President Barack Obama, I would give my best advice, and sometimes it was very different from the advice he was getting from others in the Situation Room. And sometimes, fairly often, where he would come out would be different than my best advice 
But I never thought that where he came out was unreasonable. Mm-hmm. I thought he always reached a reasonable solution to a difficult problem. So may not have, to the letter, followed my advice, but said, well, that's not a bad result. I can defend that and implement that. Three times you wrote a re- letter of resignation but didn't send it. Correct. What were the... No, what? I knew you were going to go well, there. Well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> really, Jay? You're going you're gonna to say three times. That was version four. Three times I wrote it and just the writing I mean, I mean, it was, was cathartic and salutary, yes, right, as you said, yeah. which, which I completely understand. Yeah. But... Jay, you are a, a strong person, principled, strong moral character. For you to even sit down and write version one, what was it? <laughs> or version two or version three? Well, let me, ans- let me answer it this way. When you're in a senior political position, you have to, you have to know where your exit ramps are. You have to know... When's the, when's, the right, when's the right time to depart and should I take this specific exit ramp? Is this an opportunity to take this specific exit ramp? And I think throughout my time with President Obama, I saw my exit ramps and chose after considerable reflection not to take most of them. I left the Obama administration twice, once in the first term, after the first term, and then eight months later, he asked me to come back. Sure, I mean... Jonathan, it should come as no great surprise to you or anyone listening to us that in the jobs I had as general counsel of DOD or secretary of DHS, there are very frustrating moments. If you're a sensitive, engaged person doing your job and doing your utmost to do your job, there are going to be frustrating moments when you just feel like, you know, I really just want to go, I just want to quit and go back home to Montclair, New Jersey and be a normal person again and get rid of my Secret Service detail and just be a normal commuter who reads the paper, goes to work every day, and doesn't have to deal with targeted lethal force or, or don't ask, don't tell, or immigration policy or family detention. And, you know, you reach a point where you'd say, it would feel really good right now to hand in my letter of resignation and, and, and float a copy to the Washington Post. And then you move on. You, you write the letter. You feel a little better. It stays in draft. Uh, <laughs> and then you move on. Just like and certain people in power today, I think, could try to do a little better job at this. Just like I'd wake up first thing in the morning at 5.15 and I'd triage my iPhone for news items and the times of the post, and there'd be something that would really, really make me angry. It was usually a leak or an inspector general's report that I didn't see coming or something that was really bad and just made me very upset. I'd get to work at around 6.15, 6.30 in the morning. My Intel book is sitting on my desk for me to read. And before I'd even take my jacket off, I'd write a public statement about what had made me very angry the hour before. And I type it out, and it's, that story is false, and this is why it's, it's a scurrilous lie and this and that. And I draft it, and then I'd wait for my staff to get in, my chief of staff, my deputy chief of staff, my communications person, and I'd hand them copies, and I'd say, <laughs> read this. And I know what they were going to do. They were gonna, it was 
giving them an opportunity to talk me out of pushing the send button on something. And most of the time, they did talk me out of it. And then we'd move on. And by 11 a.m. that morning, I'd forget what it was that made me angry because I'd become absorbed in 12 other issues. And so, but occasionally there were times when I wouldn't let them talk me out of it. And they were very strategic. But sometimes you you do things like resignation, write resignation letters or or angry public statements to simply blow off steam. <laughs> I can't wait to read that book. Just <laughs> I'm not Jay, writing a book. Jay's drafts. <laughs> that would be a great. That would be a great book. I could show them to you. Yeah, I'm going to take you up on that. By the way, don't think I didn't hear that. I would not be surprised to f- learn that certain people in today's West Wing have multiple versions of a resignation letter sitting on their hard drive. Mm-hmm. Well, sure. I, well, one would only hope that would speak to their moral character. But um, you were general counsel of the Department of Defense. Yes. And I'm, there's no question here. I just want to point that out and also to remind remind people that in that role, you were tasked by the president to lead the task force that led to— At a partner. Yeah, right. You Co-chair did, uh, General uh, Carter-Ham. That led to the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Yes. And that, you know, I've written this piece a couple of times. Every once in a while, I'll tweet it back out to remind people— that there were four straight African-American men who did a lot for LGBT equality. You were one of them for getting rid of the ban on, on gays and lesbians serving openly in the military. And so since this is Pride Month, I want to thank you for that. With now the benefit of eight years hindsight, first a couple things. My co-chair, General Carter Ham, career army, started as an army private and went all the way to four-star general, was indispensable to the effort. He doesn't get enough credit in my view. I wrote most of the report, but it was in General Ham's voice because he knew the military far, far better than me. And he knew how to speak to that community far, far better than me. Um, And he didn't want the assignment. He really didn't want the assignment, Mm -hmm. but like a good soldier, he did what he was told and he accepted the assignment. And frankly, If you had asked his view on the policy position, I think he would have been against repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But he was given an assignment. He did his research with me, alongside me, and came to the same conclusions I did simply from an objective observation of the evidence. So that's one thing. But in retrospect, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 2010 was really an idea whose time had come. The military for 17 years had been allowed to live in a 1993 mindset about the issue, frozen in time. And simply by asking the question and conducting the review, we had conversations with thousands and thousands of military. We stirred the pot and got people to reassess their own biases and assumptions about whether gay people could serve openly in the military. And so by the time the report was issued, I think that opinion within the military community had shifted from the moment we started to the moment we entered. Mm. And it was really an idea whose time had come by that point. And frankly, the implementation of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell went far smoother than even we predicted and recommended. Well, thank God for that. Let me end by asking you about, since the president has made a big deal, President Trump has made a big deal about football players 
standing for the national anthem because by standing for the national anthem, you're respecting the flag and you're respecting the military. Yep. What's your view? How do you feel about about all that? Well, you're not going to let me off easy, are you? Uh-uh. Okay. Nope. Um, nope. So I have a friend who was an advisor to me at DHS. He was the guy in the front office who was the one who was going to br- – the others looked to to bring me bad news. <laughs> He's somebody who I'd known for almost 30 years when I was a young prosecutor and he was in New York City, police detective. And he'd be the one that the others would say, would you please go tell the boss that he really shouldn't do it that way? And <clears throat> long before – Donald Trump was elected long before this issue. He was a Philadelphia Eagles fan. I said, "Why? so how are the Eagles doing? You watching the games? No, I'm not. I'm boycotting, watching games. I'm mad at the NFL because they're allowing players to kneel. And I was stunned by his position. And I said, but it's a, an exercise of free speech. How can you? No, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. So that was my first window into the opposition to that that existed. And so when President Trump last year first stoked this fire, I knew then that there were a lot of people out there who had a strong point of view on this. Um, And we saw how people reacted and were divided accordingly. So that same friend told me, gave me an idea that I thought was pretty good, which was tell players that you can kneel, but if you do kneel, you will be you will be fined, and what you pay in fines will go to your not-for-profit of choice that addresses the issue that leads you to kneel in the first place. Players are expected to stand for the national anthem. I believe, I personally believe, notwithstanding the issue, I should always stand for the national anthem and put my right hand over my heart, and I always do, no matter how upset I am at what our government might be doing. But give players who are determined to kneel a vehicle for addressing the cause that leads them to kneel in the first place so that the money that they are fined goes to addressing the issue of police brutality or whatever it is that leads them to protest in this way. And by doing that, you also give players a graceful way out. In other words, they can discontinue the practice because they felt that they had made a contribution to the issue. So that's one solution that I thought was a a decent one for a very difficult problem. And at least with that solution from that your friend articulated, recognizes that players aren't kneeling – um, for superficial reasons. Correct. That right. they're kneeling for a reason, trying to call attention to something. Let me let Correct. you go with this exit question. Yes, sir. Should we feel any sympathy for the folks in the Trump administration who have to implement the policies that we've seen that have horrified um, a good chunk of the country um, over the over the last few weeks? Should we feel sympathy for... Uh, Chief of Staff John Kelly, as you were talking about before, or Secretary Nielsen, the current um, Secretary of Homeland Security. I'm going to answer it this way. When you're in the bunker, people often convince themselves that notwithstanding the the scathing reviews in the Washington Post, the New York Times, or on MSNBC, 
what I'm doing is the right thing. They convince themselves of their arguments. And, you know, I've, I've been in this position where we're receiving a lot of criticism for something like family detention. And I convince myself that it's the right thing to do. And there's really no choice. And that's what's going on right now in the minds of a lot of people in the Trump administration. The people I know who, you know, include people who used to work for me, do I have sympathy for them? I have sympathy because I know the dilemma. I know the dilemma that you're in when you have to implement something that is controversial, that is going to be very unpopular in certain quarters. And you have to always remember and think about, well, how will history reflect on my actions? And that's something that I think folks need to be continually aware of. I, I, the thing I worry most about right now in this period is government decision-making in a bunker, in a bunker mentality where people shut out the objections and the cries and the images and just continue down a certain path for the sake of being stubborn, for the sake of consistency and not hearing in our democracy the objections and the outcry. And somehow the human mind is a powerful thing. It has the ability to drown out in your hearing and in your vision uh, what is right in front of you. And so I worry about decision-making in a bunker and I worry about a bunker mentality that may exist today in our White House. Secretary Jay Johnson, former Secretary of Homeland Security, thank you very, very much for being on the podcast. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.